You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and take your seats. Good morning once again. Happy Father's Day. We're so glad that you are here with us this Sunday and this Father's Day. Please open with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John chapter 11. That's the Fourth gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in your New Testament. Before we get into our study, I wanted to talk to you. Sean mentioned to you that on your chair, you probably noticed this, that uh, there is a kind of booklet-ish thing. And what this is, is this is an update on our building project. So if you've been around here for any amount of time, you've heard us talk about a building uh, at various times. There were times when we uh, put offers on buildings, and uh, we have not yet gotten one, as you can see. But here's the thing. Our church is growing, and our ministries are growing. Plus, we have a lot of vision. We have a lot of things that we'd like to see. We believe that the Lord wants to accomplish. And these are things that here in this building, it's been very good to us over the last several years. But we are running into some uh, space constraints when it comes to kids. We're running into other issues. With you know, It's very labor-intensive to set up every Sunday. And we also believe that as the future uh, goes further, that God has more people he wants to bring into our fellowship. And, um, and so we want to just be right in step with God in these things. And so we do believe that the next stage for us as a church is going to include having our own facility. That's something we've been saving for for a while, just trying to be really you know, financially responsible and, and, and careful with how we spend our money and things like that. Being in this place has allowed us to do that. And so we've been saying being up a down payment. We've been talking to different lenders, looking at different properties. Currently, there isn't a property which would be available uh, on the market right now that would work for us. We've always got our ear to the ground and looking. But the reason I'm talking about this is because recently we had somebody, you know, approach us and say, hey, we, we really believe in what Whitefields is doing. We want to get behind it, but here's how we want to do it. They said, we're, we're prepared to really get behind this building fund, but we don't want to do it alone. Like we don't want to just be the one person given towards it. So they said, what we'd like to do is do a matching fund. These things are great, by the way, because really what it means is like literally every dollar you give towards a project can be doubled. So what we have right here is just some information about this matching um, grant opportunity. It's available for the next couple weeks. And, uh, and what that means is that any donations which are given over the next couple of weeks towards our building project, which means building up really our um, down payment, which really helps us. We, we met with, I met with somebody today. We had an outside kind of financial um, evaluation done of our church finances, kind of an audit of sorts. And, you know, they came back and said, hey, really healthy, looks really good. Everything looks, you know, right where it should be. Um, but they said, you know, if you want to get in a building, you're going to need to raise more down payments. So we thought, hey, this, these, all, these seem to be things that God's doing at the same time, right? These people saying that, this other person offering this matching grant. And so we have some information here for you. We just encourage you to read that through and pray about it and uh, check it out. All the information is in there, and we'll see how God leads and what God does in the future. I think we are in exciting times for our church, and we're excited for the future. But today, uh, we are in the Gospel of John chapter 11. So I'd like to begin our study this morning by reading the text, which comes from the Gospel of John chapter 11. We're gonna kind of, uh, it's a long passage, and so we're not gonna read every verse, but we're gonna read a lot of them. So let's begin by reading John chapter 11, starting in verse one. A certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the feet, uh, anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to Jesus saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. 
Verse five, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Verse 17, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Verse 30. Two says this. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could, he not, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have also kept this man from dying. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it speaks to us. And this morning we come with expectant hearts as we open your word, expecting to hear from you, expecting to receive a word that is relevant to our lives. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to not only understand the message of this text, but apply it to our lives and answer some of these questions. Lord, we pray that you would move us even now today from areas where we struggle with doubt and unbelief. Move us into faith and belief, Lord, that we might have better communion with you, that we might be used by you in the world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Our current series is called I Could Never Believe in a God Who, and during these eight weeks, we were originally doing seven, then we extended it to eight. You'll see what that next, uh, that eighth one is coming up soon. But over these, the course of these eight weeks, what we're doing is we're taking an honest look at some of the biggest objections that people have to Christianity and the Bible. A few months ago, we posted a poll online in which we asked the question, how would you finish this sentence? I could never believe in a God who... See, we believe that those responses reflect the things that people struggle with the most when it comes to Christianity and the Bible. And so what we did is we took those responses that we got through that poll from you and other people that the poll was shared with, and, and then we looked at other research on these topics, and we came up with eight topics. So we said, okay, these are the eight topics that we want to talk about and cover. And here's our goal with this series. On the one hand, we want to help people move from doubt and unbelief to faith and belief. And we want to remove some of the barriers. And here's why. Because we really believe, as we look at these subjects, that there are a lot of things that people believe are barriers to them uh, believing, which we, we believe aren't really such big barriers if relevant information was, was produced. So we want to produce that information, put it before you, and say, look, these things that are causing hurdles, maybe they're not as big of a hurdle as you might have thought. So we want to help people move from doubt and unbelief to faith and belief. One of the things that came about in our poll is we realized that it's not only people who don't believe in Christianity who struggle with these kinds of questions, but many Christians also struggle with doubts and areas where they struggle with belief. And so we want to help you. But the other thing we want to do, the second thing we want to do, we want to equip you. Because we know that you talk to other people. You have friends, coworkers, family members, and they're asking a lot of these same questions. You're hearing these things maybe in the news or maybe on YouTube and places like that. And we want to give some answers so that you'll be equipped 
to give an answer for the hope that you have. And you'll be able to speak to other people and help them move from doubt and unbelief to faith and belief. So when it comes to Christianity and the Bible, one of the biggest struggles that people have is they say this. They say, I could never believe in a God who allows good people to suffer. Allows good people to suffer. My wife, Rosemary, and I, we moved here to Colorado seven years ago from Hungary. We lived there for over 10 years where uh, we were church planting. We were missionaries. We were doing humanitarian work and church planting. And uh, the last place we were before we moved here, we lived there for seven years. We planted a church there, and we raised up local leaders to take over that church. And so the day we left Hungary, a bunch of our friends came over to our house, an empty house at that point, and they were there to bid us goodbye. I think we left around two in the morning uh, for the airport. And so our, our friends were there. You know, we had planted this church there. We had moved there really knowing almost nobody. And, you know, through a miraculous series of events, God brought people into our lives. We were able to share the gospel with them. We saw a lot of people become Christians. We baptized people. There was one couple in particular. Uh, his name was Yoni and her name was Tundi. And uh, Yoni and Tundi, when they first started coming to our church, they were not Christians, neither of them. I, I baptized them both. You know, I got to be there when they were married. I, I saw God work in their lives so much. And they both became Christians in our church. And this man, Yoni, he was the one who I trained and raised up. Think about this. In seven years, I met this guy. He was an atheist. God worked in his life. I saw him get married. I saw, you know, uh, he became an elder in our church. He grew in the Lord, and finally when I left, I handed the church over to him. I ordained him as a pastor, and he took over being the pastor of that church, and he's still the pastor of that church to this day. And that day that we left Hungary seven years ago, that night when we were at our empty house saying goodbye to all of our friends, Yoni and Tundi announced that they were going to have a baby that she was pregnant. And that's something they had been praying for, and we've been praying for them to get pregnant. So they announced, we're going to have a baby. Well, a few months after that, the baby was born. And then a few months after that, I traveled back to Hungary to be with Yoni and Tundi, not for a visit, but for a funeral. Because that baby that they had prayed for, that baby that they had announced and celebrated, had died. And, um, and I preached at that funeral with that little casket. So, you know, such a terrible thing. Uh, to be a part of. So sad. And here's this couple, and you wonder, what is this, right? Here's this guy, he gives his life to serve the Lord. He, he's praying for this baby. He gets the baby, and then the baby dies? Like, couldn't God have healed their baby? These people are serving him. They're doing everything God wants them to do. Why would God let this happen to them? God could have healed the baby. Why didn't he? A year after that, I went back to Hungary again, uh, again to attend a funeral, this time for a friend of mine named Petty. Petty was 40 years old. Oh, it's too young to die, right? He had a wife. He had three daughters, right? Just getting to the teenage years. And he got cancer. And within a year, he died. Many people, you know, we had a big community of people uh, in those churches, and they prayed for Petty to be healed. But he didn't get better. And you look at that and you wonder, how is that good? Who benefits from that? Who wins? Nobody wins in that situation. Everybody loses because this man is gone. A widowed wife, orphaned children, a church without a pastor. And the question that people naturally ask is this, why? Why, God, why? If you love us, God, if you care about us, then why do you let babies die? 
Why do you let good people like Petty die of cancer? Why, do, why don't you heal him if you can? In our poll that we took, this was the number one response we received to the question of uh, what people struggle with the most when it comes to believing in God. And your suffering, it's a personal issue. It's a personal issue. See, here are some of the responses we got to our poll. And, you know, behind these responses, you can almost feel the heartache of people who are writing them, right? One person said, I struggle with believing in a God who would allow miscarriages. You know, that's probably coming from a very personal place. Uh, Someone else says, I don't understand why God allows atrocities. If God is so good, if God is so loving, then why does he allow bad things to happen? That's always our first response, isn't it? That's always the immediate question we tend to ask. We always ask this question. I wonder if there's some of you here today, I don't know what's going on in your life, but you're asking that question right now. Maybe you've been diagnosed with something. Maybe there's someone you love who's, who's hurting or, or something's going on. Maybe things are falling apart in your family. Maybe things aren't going well at work. Maybe some of you, you would say, I have experienced a disproportionate amount of hardship and suffering in my life. And the lingering question in your mind is, why? Why me? Why these things? And sometimes, as people struggle with how to make sense of the harsh realities of this life, they begin to say things like, you know what? Maybe there is no God. Maybe that's what it is. Or if there is a God, maybe uh, he just doesn't love me or he doesn't care or, or else why would he allow these kinds of things to happen to me? So this is a deeply personal issue. In our poll, uh, what we saw and, and it's other research has shown this too, you could put it this way. For the average person today who is skeptical about Christianity and the Bible, most of their objections are not intellectual, they're personal. They're deeply personal. So this is a personal issue. Suffering is also a philosophical issue. You know, it's not just the things that happen to us personally that we search for an answer for, but we somehow have to make sense of all the immense amount of tragedy and suffering that we see in the world. I mean, just think about it. Let me just give you some stats to think on. Three million Africans were kidnapped and forced into slavery through the British slave trade. Six million Jews were murdered in the Holocaust. The Rwandan genocide, 1994, wasn't that long ago, right? ethnic cleansing in the Balkans and other places around the world. More than two million children trafficked every year in the global sex trade. 1.5 million children died last year of diarrhea. There are famines in South Sudan, Nigeria, Yemen. In 2004, a tsunami hit Indonesia and killed 230,000 people. That's hard to even imagine. What about cancer? You know, what about children who are abused by people who are supposed to be taking care of them? You know, Richard Dawkins, I've mentioned his name a couple times in the series. He's what you might call an evangelical atheist, which means that not only is he, con- he's not content with being an atheist himself, he wants you to be an atheist too, right? And so he looks at these things, and here's what Richard Dawkins says. He says, considering these things, our universe has precisely the properties that you would expect to see if There is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Another philosopher, David Bentley Hart, he says this, one might well conclude that the world contains far too much misery for the pious idea of a good and loving and just God to be taken seriously, and that any alleged creator of the universe in which children suffer and die hardly deserves our devotion. Those are hard words. Let me ask you, is that true? Is that true? Just 
straight up, is that true that the reality of evil and suffering in the world is incompatible with the biblical teaching that there's a God who is good and loving and all-powerful? Is it true that the reality of suffering and evil discredits what the Bible says about God? Historically, this topic has been uh, called, it has a name for it actually, this issue we're talking about, and it's been called the trilemma of theodicy. Now let me just explain what that means. Theodicy is the area of study about why does God allow suffering in the world? So that's what theodicy is. Um, trilemma, think about dilemma, except in dilemma there's two. Trilemma means there's three. The idea of the trilemma of theodicy is this idea that there are three things which Christianity says are true, but they can't all be true at the same time. And here's what those three things are. Number one, God is loving. Number two, God is all-powerful. And number three, evil and suffering exist. And the argument goes like this. If evil and suffering exist, which they obviously do, then either God is not loving or God is not all-powerful. Because if God is all-powerful, that means he has the ability to stop evil and suffering from happening, but he doesn't, which means that he must not be loving. Or else it means that he is loving, but he's not all-powerful, that he wishes he could stop evil, but he can't. So is this true? Is the existence of evil and the reality of suffering incompatible with the existence of a good, loving, all-powerful God? The Bible addresses this question directly, and it says, no, it's not incompatible, and here's why. You know what the problem with the trilemma of theodicy? You know, you look at that and you say, wow, pretty convincing, right? But it's not. Here's why this is bad, bad thinking. Because the trilemma of theodicy only deals with two of God's many attributes. It says that God is loving and God is all-powerful. But guys, as Christians, people who read the Bible, we believe that God has many more than just two attributes, doesn't he? He's not just two attributes. God is all-loving and he's all-powerful, but he's also more than that. He's also all-knowing. He's also omnipresent. He's also sovereign. He's also providential. And what that means is this, suffering, much more than being incompatible with the, uh, the good and loving and true God, suffering can actually play a role in God's love. It's a crazy thought, but it's true. Now, in fact, there's a sense in which, now think about this, and I'll explain a little bit more. There's a sense in which the existence of evil and suffering in the world is actually a proof for the existence of God. But let's go on. It's not just a personal issue. It's not just a philosophical issue. It's also a biblical issue. It's a very deeply biblical issue. The Bible has a lot to say about the issue of pain and suffering in the world. In fact, the oldest book in the Bible chronologically, the first book to be written historically, you know, scholars believe, was the book of Job. And what is the book of Job about? It's all about the question of why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? The next oldest book is the book of Genesis. And Genesis tells us so much about why the world is the way that it is and why bad things happen. See, in the book of Genesis, we learn that God didn't create the world to be a place of suffering and evil and darkness. God created the world good. And yet evil came into the world through our choices, through our rebellion against God. And throughout the rest of the Bible, we see the story of how sin has led to death and suffering throughout the ages. And there's a sense in which this question, why do bad things happen? This question is actually the question of the Bible. This is the question which the Bible in all of its entirety serves to exist in a way. 
right? But here's the thing. The Bible doesn't just tell us why there is evil and suffering in the world. The Bible also tells us the good news. That's what the word gospel means, good news. The good news of what God has done and is doing now in order to bring an end to all the evil and suffering in the world once and for all. So you could say that the question of evil, the question of suffering, and where is God in all of this, this is the central issue that the Bible addresses. See, the existence of evil and suffering in the world is not an embarrassment to Christianity, nor is it something that we ever shy away from talking about. In fact, this is what the Bible talks about perhaps more than anything else. It would say this, suffering, evil in this world is a signpost pointing us to not only the existence of God, but the ultimate hope of the world and the hope of the gospel. There are three important things the Bible has to say about suffering that I want to bring to your attention today just to add some color to this topic. So three important things the Bible has to say about suffering. Number one, there are two kinds of suffering. There are two kinds of suffering. All the suffering in the world, in a way, I know it's a bit simplistic, but it can be categorized into two categories. One is what we call explicable suffering, and the other one is what we call inexplicable suffering. So explicable and inexplicable. So, uh, for example, explicable suffering are, means this. There are things for which there is an explanation. Suffering which can be traced. There's a, there's a clear explanation for why it happened, how it took place. My grandmother died of emphysema but she never smoked a day in her life. However, she was around people who smoked all the time, right? And so she breathed secondhand smoke for over 70 years. That's explicable suffering. You can trace where it comes from, why it happened. It's clearly the consequence of certain actions. Now, sometimes our suffering is, the, is because of other people's actions. Sometimes, on, on the other hand, my suffering is brought on by my own actions. It's suffering nonetheless, but that is explicable suffering. See, one of the reasons why there's suffering in the world is because we're broken people. We make mistakes. Sometimes we act selfishly in ways that hurt others or even ourselves. So that's explicable suffering. You can trace it. You can explain it. But there's another kind of suffering in the world too. It's what we call inexplicable suffering. These are things for which there doesn't seem to be any real point or explanation that you can point to and say, this is why this is happening, right? Just random accidents or, you know, somebody was right there and an earthquake hit and some, or somebody like takes care of themselves really well physically, but then they get sick and die. And as much as you search for an explanation to try to trace it out, there isn't one. And some of the suffering in the world falls into this category, inexplicable suffering. And it's because not just us as humans, but the Bible says that all of creation is broken. It lies under the dark cloud of a curse. There are also two common responses to suffering. So there's two kinds of suffering. There's also two common responses. The first response you might call moralism. Moralism. Moralism basically says this, and this is a very common response, especially with uh, people you might categorize as religious. Moralism basically says this. If you do all the right things, then God will protect you and won't let bad things happen to you. In other words, good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. So if you're a good person and you're doing all that God wants you to do, then God kind of, in a way, owes it to you to protect you from bad things happening to you. And it would say this, you know, if you're doing all the right things and God lets something bad happen to you, then you feel like he owes you an explanation 
because he hasn't kept up his end of the bargain. At least that's how you feel. Now think about this. This thinking, this moralistic thinking is inherent to the very question, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Right? The idea there is that a good person is deserving of only good things and bad things shouldn't happen to them. You know, moralistic responses. Uh, when my friend's baby died, people came up to them and said things like, well, you know why this happened. There must be some unconfessed sin in your life, right? Not very helpful, is it, right? Moralistic responses to suffering, sometimes we respond by saying, okay, I just need to double down, right? I need to, you know, I need to read my Bible and pray, and I need to do more of this. I need to do more things for God. So you start reading your Bible. You start going to church regularly. You start doing these things, not really to encounter God per se, but really your primary motivation, or maybe it's a mixed motivation, you're trying to score some points with the big man upstairs, right? You're thinking that, hey, if God sees all the things I'm doing for him, then surely he will, you know, make everything go the way that I want it to go. Kind of like we think, you know, it's an I'll scratch your back if you scratch my back type of thing. But then when things don't turn out the way you wanted, what happens? People sometimes tend to get mad at God, right? They feel like God didn't hold up his end of the agreement, even though in reality, God never entered into that agreement in the first place. Moralism says, if I do this, then God will be obligated to not let me suffer. But guys, you know, moralism is not what the Bible teaches. In fact, the Bible teaches emphatically against this kind of thinking. And if you read through the Bible, you'll find that there were actually many people who did exactly what God wanted them to do, and yet they didn't have smooth or easy lives. And, and maybe you would wonder, well then, look, if that's the case, if following God isn't going to provide me with an easy, smooth life, then what's the point of following God? Well, we're going to talk about that in a minute. The other common response uh, is not just moralism. The other, extreme is, the other extreme response, which is also very common, is cynicism. Cynicism is when you say, hey, look, life stinks, then you die, right? Like suffering is random, bad things just happen, and that's all there is to it. You don't need to over-spiritualize it. There's no need to find an explanation. There's no rhyme or reason to all of this. It's all just random, and you just need to get over it and move on. And the Bible says, no, see, that's not it either. It's neither moralism nor cynicism. Rather, here's the deal. We live in a broken world where sin and death are realities, but where there is also a good and a sovereign God. And so suffering isn't just completely random, nor does it work in a moralistic way of earning and deserving. In the Gospel of John, chapter 11, the story that we read here at the beginning, we have a story about a time when Jesus came face to face with the reality of human suffering, and we see how he responded. And there are three things we see in this story that give us great insight into the topic of suffering. The first is the delay. The first is the delay. So the story begins by telling us that one of Jesus' friends was sick. Jesus' friend was sick. His name was Lazarus. He was the brother of Mary and Martha who were mentioned uh, in other places in the Bible because they were close personal friends of Jesus. They lived in a town called Bethany. Bethany is really a suburb of Jerusalem. It's literally within walking distance of downtown or the old city of Jerusalem. And so it seems like what happened was that whenever Jesus came to Jerusalem, he would stay at the house of these people, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. It tells us in verse three, the writer John, he goes out of his way to tell us something about Lazarus, and that is that Jesus loved him. In fact, that phrase is repeated three times in this 
short story, that Jesus loved these people. And that's really important because the fact that Jesus loved these people sheds an important light on this story. Um, In order to understand what Jesus is doing here, you have to first understand this. You have to see it through this lens. Jesus loved these people. So everything he's going to do begins with that and ends with that, that Jesus loves these people. His actions were motivated by that love. And so it's the fact that Jesus loved these people which makes what he did next so surprising. In verse three, Lazarus' sisters send a messenger to Jesus to tell him that Lazarus is sick and he might die. Now, now these guys, right, Mary and Martha, they've seen Jesus heal crowds of people. They've seen him heal strangers. If he did that for strangers, wouldn't he do that for a good friend? So they send a messenger, say, Jesus, Lazarus is sick. We need you to come. There's a good chance that he's gonna die. But if you come and heal him, that would be amazing. So Jesus gets the message, but look at what it says in verse five and six. It says that Jesus loved them. And because he loved them, he purposefully didn't go right away. He purposefully delayed. Why? Because he loved them. But then as a result of his delay, Lazarus dies. Now think about this. Because of Jesus' delay, Lazarus died. Direct correlation. And Jesus knew that if he waited, that was going to happen. And yet he did it anyway. And it says that Jesus did it. Why? Because he loved Mary and Martha. That just doesn't, it's hard to wrap your mind around that, isn't it? You'd expect that if Jesus loved these people, then he would have jumped, he would have rushed to heal Lazarus. And yet that's not what he did. In fact, it says again, because he loved them that he waited. His delay was tied to his love for them. For many of us, that's really hard to wrap our minds around because the way we tend to think is this. If God loves me and God can do anything, then surely he would want to save me and protect me from bad things happening to me. That's what these people thought too. But here's what we see in the story. Jesus had a purpose with allowing them to suffer. Let me say that again. Jesus had a purpose with allowing them to suffer and that purpose was motivated by love. So the story goes on. We see that after a few days, Jesus finally goes to Bethany. It says in verse 17, when he gets there, Lazarus is now dead. In fact, he's super dead, right? He's been dead for a while. Uh, he, you know, we caught a fish yesterday with my kids and my daughter was like, oh no, we gotta get the fish home because he's getting more dead. And I'm like, no, he doesn't get more dead. He's just dead, that's it. So Lazarus is very dead at this point, right? Four days dead. And uh, he's in the tomb already. They already had the funeral, locked him up in there. And it says that when Jesus got near to Bethany, uh, Mary and Martha came to him and they both are saying the same thing. Jesus, if you had been here, our brother wouldn't have died. And you can feel in those words, you can feel the pain, you can feel the disappointment, you can feel the confusion, maybe even the anger in these words. Because why? Because these guys can do math, right? Like they know how long ago Jesus received this message that their brother was sick and they know how long it takes to get from where Jesus was to where they live. So they can do the math and they can realize very quickly that Jesus did not rush to their aid, that Jesus did not come right away when he got the message, that he waited and because he waited, their brother died. And they ask him, Jesus, what, what, what is this? Why would you do that? You could have prevented this from happening and you didn't. If you really love us, then why did you let this happen to us? Haven't we done everything right? Haven't we done so much for you? Jesus, we believe in you. We follow you. We put you up in our house. 
Why, Jesus? We asked you to come, and you didn't do what we asked you to do. You could have prevented this. See, here's the deal. Sometimes, like Mary and Martha, we cry out to Jesus in our tears, and he does not come. Sometimes, even though he loves us, and sometimes because he loves us, he allows us to experience painful and difficult things. This story shows us that it's sometimes because he loves us that he allows these things. So how could this delay, how could this suffering be good in any way? How could this be loving in any possible way? It all seems so unnecessary. But as we will see, there are actually several loving reasons why Jesus allowed this. Even though Mary and Martha couldn't comprehend that, they couldn't see that in the moment. Let's go on and let's look at the next thing. The next thing is the response. We read in verse 33 that when Jesus arrived, Mary fell down at his feet and she began weeping. And it says that Jesus looked around and he saw other people weeping and mourning the loss of their brother and their friend. And here's the thing. This is what happens when somebody dies. You might say, well, Lazarus is in a better place. Maybe, but guess what? We're still left behind without him, aren't we? You know what that's like when you've lost somebody. It's one thing to know that they're in a better place, but it's another thing to say, yeah, but I still don't have them in my life, and that hurts. And it says there in verse 33 that Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. There are Bible scholars and linguists who have looked at this passage, and they've pointed out that these two phrases, deeply moved and greatly troubled, they indicate a mixture of two emotions. On the one hand, anger, and on the other hand, sadness. Anger and sadness. Jesus looked at this situation and it filled him with two emotions, anger and sadness. And here in these verses, we see Jesus coming face to face with the reality of human suffering, sickness, and death. And here's his reaction. On the one hand, he's angry. And on the other hand, he's sad to the point of weeping. Now you might say, well, wait a second. Jesus is the one who decided to not come, right? Like he could have come and he didn't. He chose to come. Why is he, he chose to delay. Why is he crying? Why is he angry? He allowed this to happen. Is he feeling regret over his decision? I would suggest it's not regret at all. In order to understand what's going on here, you have to understand who Jesus is. In the very first chapter of the Gospel of John, Jesus... Uh, John, the writer, introduced us to Jesus. And how did he introduce us? He told us two things about Jesus. First of all, he said he is the creator of the world. Jesus is God come to us. He's the creator. And not only is he creator, the second thing he told us, he's also the savior of the world. And so what we're seeing here is Jesus coming face to face with human suffering, with our suffering. And this expression uh, in his face that we see with him is anger and this sadness. It's an expression of how God feels about the evil and suffering in this world. He isn't cold or indifferent. He's not emotionally aloof. No, God looks at the world. He sees our suffering. He sees our pain and our tears and he weeps over it and he's upset by it. Do you know that? That God weeps with you in, in your tears? Here is Jesus, the creator, come to the creation and his heart is broken by what he sees. He's upset because he remembers how it was, how it used to be, death and suffering and tears and pain. That wasn't the design. And he's looking at this world and what has happened because of sin and he's sad, he's upset and he weeps. And you know what? God weeps with you 
in your suffering. He's upset by the things that upset you. He sees those tears. He cares for you. He's bothered by the things that bother you deeply and he weeps over it with you. And here's what's especially interesting about this reaction. Now, I don't want to ruin the story for you, but I'm going to anyway. Uh, here's, what's, here's what's going to happen. In like 10 minutes from now, Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Very cool, amazing miracle. But think about it. If Jesus knows that in 10 minutes' time, he's going to raise this guy from the dead, he's not weeping over the loss of Lazarus. Because he's going to see him again in 10 minutes, and he's like the only one who knows that. So what is Jesus weeping over? He's weeping not over the loss of Lazarus. He's weeping over the pain and suffering that he sees in the world. But here's the good news. Jesus doesn't just weep with us in our tears. He doesn't just weep over the state of affairs here on earth, but he did something about it. That's the good news, guys. He did something in order to put an end to the suffering and death in this world once and for all. And that brings us to the next thing we see in the story, which is the promise. Jesus is talking to Martha in verse 23, and he makes her a promise. He says, Martha, your brother will rise again. And then he goes on to explain, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And whoever believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He's making her a promise. Yes, he could have come earlier and healed her brother. And they wouldn't have had to go through any of this. But there's something bigger, there's something better that Jesus is pointing to and promising than not having any suffering or hardship in this life. See, what Martha needs, what all of us need, is a hope which goes beyond this life. We don't just need a Band-Aid on the pain that we feel. We need a solution, and that's what he offers us here. See, because here's the thing. Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead, which is amazing. It's great. But you know what? In a few years' time, Lazarus is going to die again, and Jesus isn't going to be there to raise him that time, is he? Lazarus isn't around today. He died and he's still dead. In other words, if Jesus heals Lazarus, even if Jesus resurrects Lazarus, that's just a temporary fix. It's a Band-Aid. What Lazarus really needs, what all of us really need, is not just a Band-Aid. We need a real fix. We need a real solution. And Jesus is telling Martha, he has come to be that solution. He himself is that solution. He came to put an end to all sickness, all suffering, all death forever. That is the promise. And he will give that gift to anyone who will receive it by faith in him. That's the promise, that through him you can experience the end of all suffering once and for all. Because Jesus came, and not long after this story, Jesus suffered, he died, he was crucified on a cross, and through his death he defeated sin, death, and the devil forever. And the Bible tells us so vividly in Revelation, right, that the day is coming when every tear will be wiped away from our eyes and there will be no more sickness and no more death forever. That's the promise. And Jesus makes it clear here to Martha that who does that promise belong to? It belongs to all who believe. What does it mean to believe? That word believe, it doesn't just mean to nod your head or assent to say hypothetically that something's true. No, this word believe, it means this, to trust in, to rely on, to cling to. And the promise of the gospel is that because of what Jesus did for you in his sinless life, in his sacrificial death, in his victorious resurrection, you can be forgiven you can be redeemed, and you can experience life with God where there will be no more suffering, death, forever. And by trusting in and relying on and clinging to Jesus and what he did for you, you can take hold of that promise. And that brings us to where we end, which is this, the big question. The big question. You know what the big question is? What is the goal 
and the purpose of your life? Ask yourself that. What is your goal in life? What is your purpose in life? That's the question you need to ask and it changes everything and here's why. Because look, if your goal and your purpose, like many people, is just to have a comfortable life and get through life without too many difficulties, if that's your goal, if that's your purpose in life, you will always view suffering as an unwelcome intrusion. It will be a distraction. It will always take you away from the goal and purpose of your life, which is to be comfortable and not have problems. On the other hand, though, if your life actually has a bigger purpose than that, which I hope it does, guys. I hope it does. If your life has a bigger purpose than just being comfortable and not having too many problems and just getting by, if your life has a real purpose, if you have a real mission that is bigger than just you, then can suffering have value? Absolutely. If the purpose and meaning and goal of your life beyond just having a mission is a specific mission, if it is to have fellowship with God and to be used by God to accomplish his purposes in the world, then can suffering have value? Without question, yes. Even here in the story of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, notice what came about as a result of this suffering. Jesus allowed this suffering. What was the result? A dialogue, a relationship, connection with Jesus, growth, growth in hope, and the hope of the ultimate hope, the gospel. Dads, how many of you have held your babies or your toddlers in a strange, sterile room while a stranger took a needle and stabbed it into their healthy little flesh. You know the look on their face. Do you know that look where they look at you and they're like, they feel so betrayed, right? You're just holding them. You let the doctor stab them and they're like, what? I thought I could trust you. I thought you loved me. That's that look of shock and horror in their eyes when they get stabbed with the needle and you're holding them. How could you allow that person to do that thing to me? And you know as a dad that in their little baby mind, their infant mind or their toddler mind, they can't comprehend what you know and why you allowed that to happen. That the reason you're allowing that to happen, the reason you're letting them experience pain is precisely because you love them. You're letting them suffer the pain of the needle now in order to save them from the future of disease. Think about parents whose children have cancer and they make the hard decision to allow their children to essentially be poisoned by doctors with drugs that make their hair fall out, make them vomit, make them have to be laid up in hospitals for weeks, even months. Why do they do that? Why do they sign off on that? Because even though the pain is bitter, it will save their child's life. See, the promise of the gospel is that the day is coming when sin and suffering and death will end forever for those who cling to Jesus. And yet, there are ways in which God, in his love, uses suffering in our lives to accomplish good things. I've got six things. I'm just gonna run you through them and we'll be done. Here are six ways in which we see in the Bible that God uses suffering in good ways in people's lives. Number one, God uses suffering to draw people to himself. Think about the prodigal son. It's when he is hungry and dirty and broke that he decides to return to the father's house. There are a lot of people who only turn to God when things get hard. And so God says, if that's the case, then so be it that you would turn to me. Secondly, God uses suffering to produce humility in us. And we know that God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. So it's a good thing for us to have humility. Third, God allows suffering to build perseverance, character, and hope within us. 
Fourth, God allows suffering to help you develop kindness and compassion and empathy for other people. Fifth, God uses suffering to advance the gospel. Think of Paul wrote to the Philippians, the things that have happened to me have served to advance the gospel. And sixth, God can use suffering in your life to bring glory to himself and good for you. I'll tell you this. You know what's the deal? Some people say, well, I'm gonna turn my back on God because of all the suffering I see in the world. Guess what? You turn your back on God because of all the suffering in the world. Does that cause the suffering to stop? No, of course not. But here's the thing. If you turn to Jesus, then one day the suffering will stop. That's the promise of the gospel. That one day you will suffer no more. Jesus came, he suffered so that through him suffering would end. And in him, your suffering now can have purpose and value. It can be redeemed for your good and for the good of others. The promise is for you as you trust in and cling to and rely on Jesus and what he did for you. Amen. Lord, as we consider these things, uh, they're not things that we take lightly. They're, they're very uh, personal to us, Lord. They're very, very serious things. But Lord, we thank you that you suffered so that one day suffering would end. And we look forward to that day and we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. May, they, may your kingdom come. But in however much time we have now, Lord, use us in this world uh, for your glory. And Lord, May we just be totally availed to you and say whatever it is that you want me to do. Here I am, send me, use me. Let me be a penny in your pocket for you to spend how and where you please. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.